Hello, and welcome to Tennis Stories. I'm your host, Anisha Boston-Hill, head of NJTL Strategic Partnerships and Events at USTA Eastern. We're so happy to be here with you again this week. So everyone has a tennis story. And on this week's podcast, we're interviewing some interesting folks in our USTA section to hear what it is about this sport that takes us from enjoying it as a hobby to an all-out obsession. My guest today is Janet Leifowitz, who is the tennis director from Greenberg, New York Park and Recreation Department and founder of Hero Tennis, an organization that delivers tennis to people with all abilities, whether they have special needs, physical disabilities, and are wounded warriors, it's an all-inclusive tennis program that's tennis for all. Janet also happens to be a USTA Eastern 2022 Tennis Woman of the Year. So Janet, thank you so much for sitting down with us. My pleasure. First, we want to just jump right into it and ask, what does it feel like to win such a prestigious award uh, this past January at the ETC from the USTA section? I mean, Woman of the Year, that's a big deal. <laughs> well, it's always nice to be recognized. But as I said in my speech, uh, what I do takes a village. So there are a lot of people who have supported my efforts. And, and you know, I felt like they were there with me that night. Um, and um, it's a very good feeling because I want people to know that People with disabilities are perfectly capable of participating in tennis. It's not the tennis we see on TV, but it's an adapted form of the sport. And it's very enjoyable. They have a lot of fun. And everybody wants to have fun. Doesn't matter whether you're disabled or able-bodied. Um, everybody wants to have a good time. And tennis seems to be very um, capable of giving that to people with disabilities, you just have to, as I said before, adapt the sport to the particular needs of who you're working with. And that's what we do. Absolutely. And you do a fantastic job. And that's why we really wanted to honor you and say thank you for all the inspiring work that you're doing. Yeah, well, I, you know, I said in my speech, it's a privilege to work with these people. Um, I don't look upon it as, you know, feeling sorry for people or anything like that. They are incredibly brave, uncomplaining, and very willing to try things, even though it may be a bit of a struggle for them. And I just admire them tremendously. And it's it's fun. It's a lot of fun. Um, to be honest with you, I'd rather work with disabled people than people who are able-bodied. Because <laughs> they never give you a hard time. Oh, that's awesome. And I'm sure you know how to, you know, handle everyone. And so you're, you're seasoned, you're woman of the year. Let's go back to your personal tennis history. When did you first pick up a racket? Um, I was eight years old. I was at a camp in Cooperstown, New York, the Ethical Culture School camp. My instructor, interestingly enough, was Chiang Kai-shek's niece. Now, you're too young to know who Chiang Kai-shek was, but he was the leader of China. Wow. And he 
came to the United States when Mao Zedong took over, the communists took over, and his niece lived with him in New York. And she came to camp and was my first tennis instructor. And I loved it. And I was only eight years old, but I just, from the beginning, just loved the sport and did well at it. And that was my introduction to tennis. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's phenomenal. Yeah. And so fast forward, you know, what inspired you to start, you know, really engaging with interact adaptive tennis? Well, I never really gave this a lot of thought. And then somebody asked me that question several years ago. I grew up in a house with an uncle who was blind. He had a seeing eye dog and he was very courageous. He, he had a newsstand in New York City. He traveled with the dog. He didn't, didn't sort of isolate himself. And I think it had more of an impression on me than I realized at the time. And when I got my job at Greenberg, one of the first things I did was to um, organize um, a wheelchair tennis tournament. And we are the only facility that's done that in Westchester, unfortunately. Um, and we ran that for four or five years and I loved it. And I saw that I had this wonderful facility with all these courts, 19 lit courts, and I was going to make sure that people with disabilities could participate in the at the facility. I worked at um, Camp Victory, which was the Greenberg camp for kids with disabilities. And then I began to run programs using that facility. And then we branched out. And in 1992, I joined forces with another woman and we founded HERO. HERO stands for Help Expand Recreation Opportunities. It's an acronym. Um, in the beginning, we were tiny. We worked with maybe a couple of hundred people. And what we found was they loved it. They enjoyed it. And there was no reason why we couldn't spread it around a bit. And we've had seasons in the last 30 years, because we're now in existence for 30 years, where we've had as many as 1,500 people in our program. Wow. Yeah, which is pretty amazing since we're so mm -hmm. little. <laughs> there aren't too many of us. We do this on a shoestring. We're a nonprofit, 501c3. And COVID dealt us the same kind of blow that it did everyone else. It was very mm -hmm. hard to raise money because when you're not running programs, it's difficult to do that. But we hung on, we were able to run enough programs that we could stay in existence. And now we're beginning to make a bit of a comeback. We're restarting some of the programs we had to suspend. And, um, you know, I think we've got a pretty good future. Um, but you have to be very persistent because <laughs> sometimes you go through slow periods and you get a little bit discouraged, but then you go and do a program and you realize while you're out there and you can't get discouraged. <laughs> you know, it's not allowed. <laughs> no. And that's why, you know, we're here to share your story, you know, and that's really, you know, the more, you know, we spread the word, the more we can all come together to help you continue to grow and build capacity and revenue. So yeah, you are really a, a pioneer in the adaptive sports space. Uh, in fact, you wrote the first adaptive curriculum for the USTA. 
That's correct. And so when was that and how did that come to life? Well, that was about 25 years ago. Um, they asked me to do that. And we had already written a manual, a hero manual. Um, we're able to get the publishing donated. And so I had that to kind of lean on. And then I took my experience with the programs and added it to the curriculum. And I think it's been revised since then because um, I saw a, a newer version of it. And it is, you know, it's kind of a living thing. It's not something that's static. And people are always finding new activities that work. Um, people are, you know, learning more about specific disabilities. And, you know, you don't just teach the same thing to everybody. So if you've got somebody who's got a physical disability, that's a different curriculum than somebody with autism. Right. Um, you've got somebody with cerebral palsy, it's different than somebody who's visually impaired. So you have to adapt the tennis to suit the needs of whoever you're working with, uh, which is part of the challenge. I mean, it's frankly part of the fun and you sometimes mm -hmm. stumble onto something that really works that you didn't expect to work. Um, and that's what we've been doing for 30 years. So it's a living, as I said, it's a living thing. It keeps changing. And we still, we still feel that we need to get to more people. Um, there's not always a very good understanding of what people can do. Um, I work with a group of women with MS and that, that's been very challenging because someone with MS would hear tennis and they kind of shake their head. You know, this, uh, I don't think so. But we've got six people who come every Wednesday to Veteran Park in Greenberg. And you should see the way these women are hitting the ball. I mean, they're wearing me out. <laughs> um, and these are people who some of them claim to me never had a racket in their hand. But the, but the point with them is not just the tennis. The tennis is the vehicle. It's that they come, they laugh, they have fun together, they tease one another, um, and they really get great exercise. And some are a little bit more able than others, but the wonderful thing is how supportive of each other they are. Um, I wish able-bodied people uh, were so supportive of one another. Um, so it's, it's just they're just fun to be around and you, you see them do things and you just marvel at their courage and they're very courageous people. And, um, rain or shine, they're there every Wednesday night. And I always invite people to come. Nobody comes, but I wish they would because they have a good time. Um, it's, it's really a very incredible experience. It sounds like it. Speaking of wounded warriors or people with disability, um, able-bodied people as well, you know, there's a hero within each of us. Absolutely. Yeah. And so you were also a boys and girls tennis coach at Woodlands High School in Hartsdale, New York for about 25 years. Yeah. Long time. I yeah. loved it. You know, I just, what happened was I was juggling the job at Greenberg and hero and coaching. Wow. <laughs> And it just got to be a bit much, but I love, I, my teams were comprised of kids who didn't have their own tennis racket, who had no experience with tennis. 
and they they learn in a period of six weeks they learned to play and then competed so we were never at the top of the league <laughs> but they learned a sport uh they got to participate in something competitive which i think is very important for women in particular um and I love doing that. It was it was wonderful. Um, I just you know when you do all this stuff, you wish there were more hours in the day. It's very hard to squeeze everything in. But um, I had some years where I had some pretty good tennis players, and we did very well. But by and large, we were we were not very strong. But it was not for lack of effort. They came every day. They practiced. They learned how to score. They learned something about strategy. And you just hope that when they get older, they'll pick up a racket at some point, play with their kids and that kind of thing. Um, and they were very nice kids. I really enjoyed that experience. No, that sounds cool. And so how did your work in the adaptive space inform your coaching style in high school? Because there was a lot of crossover. During that. Yeah, sure. Because you've got kids who don't have a disability, but they are um, disadvantaged, let's say. They, they come from um, relatively low-income homes. Uh, they don't have any experience with tennis. Uh, you hand them a tennis racket, They and I used to tease that they don't know which end to hold when you first give it to them. <laughs> they learn how to grip the racket. They learn how to make contact with the ball. Um, some of them are not natural athletes, so it's, it's a little bit difficult, but some of them are interestingly enough, and they do pretty well and they learn how to compete, how to play a game, how to score and how to be sportsmanlike, which is very important to me. So after every match, no matter what you're dealing with, you shake hands at the end, which was one of the nice things about tennis and so you learn a lot about life. Right. That's why, that's why girls participating in this sport, even if they lose every match of the year, they're learning a lot and they do improve. And you wish that there was more time in the tennis season because by the time they're beginning to play, play well, the season's over. So it's frustrating. But, um, I had some great experiences with these kids. We had a lot of fun. Cool. And so you are a true champion uh, for the adaptive tennis world. Right. How has your work in the adaptive world impacted your personal life? Well, it's gotten my whole family involved. <laughs> really? Well, my husband's been incredibly helpful. Uh, he's helped not necessarily on the court, but certainly with issues on the computer, which is not my strong suit. Um, he's actually come to some of my programs and helped me when I had instructors who were injured or not feeling well. Um, my younger daughter um, worked, did some hero work for me. She ended up after college going to St. Agnes Rehab, which no longer exists, but it was a facility in White Plains for youngsters with cerebral palsy. And she eventually became a speech pathologist. So um, she is a very compassionate kid. And so in that sense, you know, we were we were all involved together. My son uh, did the artwork for the first hero manual because he was an artist. So it was becoming sort of a, a family effort. 
which is kind of nice. Um, and it just has been what I want to do. When I get up in the morning, if I know I have a hero lesson, I feel very differently than the days when I don't. <laughs> um, because these people never cease to amaze me. They are, they are, as I said to you before, the most uncomplaining people. And believe me, they have a lot to complain about. And they don't. They want to play better. They want to get the ball over the net. They want to laugh. That's what they want to do. And it makes it very pleasant for you because your your goals are the same as theirs. Um, and it's, um, it's truly, a, I feel very lucky to have sort of fallen into this because it's changed my life. Uh, when you've got a mission like this, um, it's very exciting. No, we, we, can, we can tell. And that's why it's fitting to have you here with us, especially on this episode of Tennis Stories. Um, this episode is being released during Autism Acceptance Month. And one of the goals of this podcast is to interview people from the communities that we're celebrating during these DE&I Celebration Month. Mm -hmm. Your work with many populations with special needs is just outstanding. Can you tell us your perspective on how tennis impacts those with autism specifically? Autism is 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 a very tough disability. I mean, and I'm not saying all the rest aren't tough. Mainly because many of the kids I've worked with cannot communicate; they're not verbal. Okay, um, many of them kind of talk through the lesson in a language only known to them. I don't even notice it anymore. It just isn't there. <laughs> um, very often there are physical issues along with the cognitive issues. Um, but what you do with this population is you establish a routine and routine is very important so they know when they come to the court that they hug their rackets so that nobody gets hurt they understand that part of the routine that they do they know what a volley is they know what a ground stroke is they know what a serve is and if you can establish, and it shouldn't be a terribly long routine because of tension span issues. So maybe you're talking about 20 minutes tops, okay? I've done both group instruction with kids with autism and uh, individual lessons when it was appropriate. I prefer the group instruction because then there's a social component. One of the saddest parts of, of dealing with these kids is their inability to form friendships and mm -hmm. and communicate with other people. The isolation, so, right? Is oh, isolation? The, yeah, the social isolation for people with disabilities to me this is the worst the worst part. Mm -hmm. And if you can find a way for them so if you're doing a group lesson, have them play doubles. Have them play triples. Have three people up at the net. We don't have any hard and fast rules about this stuff. So that they understand that if I hit the ball to their partner, 
They have to be ready on the next shot to hit the ball, that they're working together. For kids with autism, this is, this is a really big deal. And so you work on that kind of, on the social component of what you're doing, aside from the physical. Very often, what is very interesting to me is that many of the kids with autism, because they have the issues they have, doesn't mean they don't have decent hand-eye coordination. And I think people assume, well, if they're dealing with autism, they're not going to be able to hit the ball. That's not true. They not only can hit the ball, they can sustain a rally. You can set up some kind of mini tennis for them. Um, and in their own way, as I said before, they can have fun. They can have a good time. Um, and we work now with hundreds of kids with autism. The good news, because I think people tend to sort of get turned off because it's all kind of grim, is that I've worked with kids now because I've been doing this so long from the time they're very young to their adolescence or young adulthood, and they do get better. Really? There is an improvement. I wish it was true for everybody. It's not true for everybody, but for many of these kids, their communication skills improve, their ability to get through a lesson is really enhanced. Um, and it's nice to see that that somehow by maturing, and I don't I don't know, I'm not a you know, I'm not a doctor, I I don't have credentials. This is all from experience, but they do get better. And um I remember in one kid in particular, the first time I met him, he was a runner. Runners are kids who never stay in one place and, and they run around the gym. I, if I hit three balls to him <laughs> during a lesson, it was a lot. Well, I worked with him as an adolescent. And by the time he was an adolescent, I talked to you a little bit earlier about routine. He knew what would happen. He'd come on the court, get his racket, go up to the net, I'd feed him volleys, then I would feed him forehands and backhands, and then I would do what's called an assisted serve. I would throw the ball up because coordinating the throw and the hit is very tough for these people. And he'd hit the ball over the net into the box, so it would be a successful mm. serve. But this is the same kid who seven or eight years earlier couldn't even stand still. So this is a big deal. That's progress. That's progress. And that's the way sometimes you have to look at the progress and understand it's not going to be in leaps and bounds. It's going to be incremental, but it's better. Things get better. And they may not smile at you. They may not say anything, but you know that they're very engaged and they're enjoying themselves. And that's, you know, much more than that you can't ask for. So. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But, and I think that's what really makes this a great activity for children and adults with autism. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's very conducive to that. And the challenge is right in front of them. The net is right in front of them. So what you do is you, the first thing you do is you put them up at the net and have them hit volleys. Everybody can hit a volley. I don't really care what the disability is. And so once you've got them hitting the ball over the net, they're they're happy as clams. They, they they think that's great. 
And then if you feel you can challenge them some more, um, I know my people never go beyond the serve line. I very rarely work with anybody at the, at the baseline. It's too long for them to track the ball. And what we're talking about here is success. So you have them at the serve line, which is a much shorter distance. So they go from volleying to ground strokes at the serve line. And even the serve can be hit from the serve line. The, you know, you make your own rules, which is kind of nice. Um, I would love the USTA, by the way, while I have a platform here. <laughs> please, please share, Janet. Please well, share. In wheelchair tennis, you're allowed two bounces. I think that people with disabilities should have the same privilege. They should be permitted to hit the ball on two bounces. I think one bounce for a lot of these people is very difficult. And you don't want to make it difficult for them. You want to make it easier. So you just make a rule that if you're going to do a little competition of some kind, that they get to hit the ball on two. They can hit it on one, but they get to hit the ball on two bounces. I do this with my MS group. And it makes a huge difference because for them, moving around is very difficult. And if you give them a ball on two bounces, they can stay in a rally much longer. So it's just a, you know, one of my suggestions, which... We will accept your feedback, Dan. Okay, okay. If you could pass that along to my friends at the USCA. I think you just did. <laughs> I think you just did. And okay. so, Janet, let me ask you. Yeah. I mean, you have, there's been many moments that you've been on the court for so many years. Um, and I'm sure you've seen a lot in your lifetime and your tennis career. Mm -hmm. Is there one moment that you can recall that really pulls at your heartstrings? Like, yep. Can you share yep. a story with us? I, I have one for you. Okay. I, I work with a young woman up at the Sawmill Club in Mount Kisco. She, I would be guessing, I don't get the diagnosis because that's private. Her head is sort of off to the side. Her hands are very spastic. When I work with her, I have to put the racket inside her hand and close her hand around the racket. Mm. She came one day before COVID. That's how long I've been working with her. She hit the ball off about 12 times in a row. Wow. I don't know why it happened that day. I wish I could sort of figure out what was going on, but I stood there in absolute awe of this young woman. I mean, for her to get one ball over the net would have been wonderful, but she got herself into a groove, what we call a groove, and the balls just kept coming. And she was so excited, the entire place erupted. Um, and she really, she really did an amazing thing that day. And I was, I was amazed. I really was amazed. It was wonderful. <laughs> no, that's, a, it sounds like it. It sounds like it. That's a, that's an amazing accomplishment for. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Yeah. And so I know you have so many plans for the future for Hero. Can you share some of your plans going into, you know, this year and next year? What do you have in yes, Well, what we're trying to do now is to restart programs we, we had to suspend because of COVID. So that's one of my goals. And we're getting some new programs. I just spoke to somebody from Westchester Community College who works with uh, people with special needs at the college. 
and we're probably going to do a program for them in June. That's brand new. Um, we may be working with an agency in Connecticut called Ableist that has group homes, and that program will start. We have to wait for the weather to cooperate a little because a lot of our stuff is outside. We can't, we're little, we cannot afford to pay the fees you have to pay to be inside on a court. Um, so that's another thing that's new. We're going to be doing some programs on Long Island. We just completed a new school. We did... Um, Oh, you'd be interested in this. I've been doing the program at a place called James E. Allen, which is a BOCI school out in Dix Hills. Okay. We did 257 kids in one day. Wow. Participated in the program. And then we did a new program at a school called Abraham Lincoln School, also in, in, uh, in Deer Park, with 50 kids, many of whom, by the way, had autism. And the way that works is they come, we warm up, we teach them how to, we play some little games with them. We teach them how to hit the volley because as I said, everybody can hit the volley. And then we put prizes on the floor and they have to hit the prize with their shot. And it's wonderful. And these little kids, they were all, I would say about eight or nine, left the gym with hats and t-shirts and wristbands and keychains and water bottles and with big smiles on their faces and that's yeah that's what we do with that so we want to do more programs like that great so we just want to we want to get to as many people as we can because this the, the tragedy of all this is the number of people who sit in group homes staring at the television their recreation is going to McDonald's, which is not the best place for them to be. They don't get enough physical exercise. And so it's finding some people at an agency or a group home or a day treatment center who wants us to do this, who's enthusiastic, and then finding a place to do the program, setting it up, planning the day. So there's a lot of organizational work that goes into it. So we want to get to as many people as we can as soon as we can um and you know you wish it was faster but it just takes time to organize these things but you know i would love to get another couple of hundred people in in 2023 that would that would be nice the more the merrier and um just hope that we can reach many more people in the next few years that that would be a that would be wonderful I think you will. And we're here to help you with that. And so at the ETC, you not only won the Woman of the Year Award, but you also can facilitated an amazing, um, very dynamic and engaging workshop for professionals, informing them uh, about, you know, the curriculum for adaptive learning. Mm -hmm. um, what is your message to tennis professionals who might be hesitant to begin delivering adaptive tennis that's a good question and it's been a source of frustration for me a lot of tennis professionals um to be perfectly blunt with you don't get it um this is not about them you see and they tend to be somewhat egocentric now maybe that's harsh but i think that's the case i need people who have big hearts i need people who get what we're doing. I don't want somebody there who's interested in the perfect forehand. This is not what we're about. 
I want somebody who will come, who cares about the people, who exerts some patience, um, and does this on a regular basis. So, you know who does this on a regular basis? Jenny Schnitzer. Jenny Schnitzer is, is our, as I called her at the, at the conference, our fearless leader. I, this, I adore this woman. She has been so good to me personally and to Hero. She goes once a week and works with disabled people. Well, if Jenny, with her schedule, can do that, anybody can do that. And I mentioned that night that the dream I have is that every tennis player in the United States spends one hour a week working with disabled people. Think about the kind of country we would be. We've become kind of a very polarized country where everybody's angry at everybody. Imagine if we could all chip in, not 20 hours a week, not 10 hours a week, one hour a week, where you go someplace and you do this work. And I understand the latest figure I saw was 26 million. Imagine if 26 million tennis players did this once a week. What kind of country we would be. Yeah. It would be a much nicer place to live, you know? Absolutely. And we look forward to supporting you in that mission and everything that you do. And so, Janet, on behalf of USTA Eastern, I want to thank you for sharing your tennis story with us. Well, thank you for giving me this opportunity. It's a pleasure to, to, to meet you. And I'm, I hope you get, there are other people like me out there, by the way, who, who really don't do this on a regular basis, who I know. Um, I have a suggestion for you. Lorraine Rolson, who runs the program down at Co-op City in the Bronx. She is sensational. You wanna have an interview with someone by herself working with like 120 kids down there. So she's just a suggestion. I'm sure I have 10 others, but she was the first one to come to mind. <laughs> hey, we have an official talent booker. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Janet. And so tune in next time to hear our tennis stories during Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Mm. And don't forget this May is National Tennis Month. Thank you for listening.